welcome to episode 57 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon, joined as often by the Statmaster General and my co-host, Jim Passon Jr. Jim. Hey, happy March to you. Yes, happy March. We are in like... I don't know. We're we're somewhere between in the ten more temperate animal zone in terms of how our month is going so far. Uh, so, uh, but uh, joining us today, uh, I'm actually really happy to have him on. It's the first time I've ever like publicly invited anyone on the show, and they accepted. So, <laughs> super happy about that. I I re- was literally sitting by my computer, like, holy shit, it worked. Uh, Craig Calcaterra is here. Craig, how are you? Desperate, obviously. No, just <laughs> you know, you, you you just ask people stuff and they'll do it sometimes. It's it, not that hard. It's pretty incredible. It, and, you know, the, it's uh, you either end up blocked or you end up getting them on the show. It's a very binary outcome. If, if there's somebody in something as unimportant as baseball media that is going to, like, pull an attitude and block people <laughs> or whatever just for being asked, those are not people you want to talk to anyway. This is not an important world, and no one who does it is important. And if you <laughs> act important, that says a hell of a lot about you. Right, exactly. You need There's there's other occupations in your life that uh, in other people's lives that need more attention than this. Um, I, I would say so. I mean, do, I if you, so. like, ask... If you ask like Lady Gaga to come on, she'd at least have like an assistant say sorry, but thank you. You know. Yeah, exactly. I don't. You're you're a you're writing for ESPN or something. No, no, no pictures. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's it must be tough living that life. You know what I mean? Um, exactly. But you know, so for those who who listen to our show, our our little pocket of the world, they most likely know who you are. But for anyone who doesn't, you know, it's like Joe DiMaggio. You play hard because you don't know who's watching. Um, you know, you, you've written a ton of places, Hardball Times, uh, NBC, uh, but you know, now, now you are, uh, you are striking out on your own. Uh, you've got the cup of coffee newsletter and you, you're also writing about politics. Like you really cover a lot of ground. I just want to, I, uh, I just want to ask you, how's freelancing? How is freelancing life these days? It's, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting way to put that question. Cause I, I don't consider myself a freelancer. Maybe I am. Um, when I think of freelance writing, I think of someone who's out there hustling and coming up with story ideas and pitching them to people and, and working hard. And those people, they just, they work like crazy. Um, the initiative you have to take to do that is like way more than anything I have. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am on my own now, but the newsletter thing that I'm doing, I almost feel like I'd be embarrassed to call myself a freelancer because it's work, but I'm not like working it. I'm not like hustling. I just put up my shingle and kept writing the same things that I was writing before and with the hope that people would follow it. Right. And, and luckily a lot of people have followed it. So it's worked out really, really well. Um, but I consider what I'm doing now to be, you know, a 10 or 12 year project of specifically not working hard to try to find work to write, to just, <laughs> just sort of doing my thing and hoping like hell someone will read it. It's, Love it. it's fascinating. You know, you, re- you really are, you really took a, took a leap of faith there and it seems to have worked out. Um, I, I, what I like about the newsletter is you really do like, I, you literally have no idea sometimes what you're going to open the next day. And I kind of, I like that. I think that's cool. It's fun. I I don't have a huge attention span, and I 
I tell people that I know a little about a lot of things. And for any one thing I know a little bit about, there are a million people who know a lot more. And if I was going to write a, you know, Joe Sheehan writes a baseball newsletter and has been writing a baseball newsletter for years and years. He's the OG baseball newsletter mm-hmm. guy, former yeah. baseball perspectives, Joe Sheehan. Uh, when he writes about something, he is going to analyze it. He is going to look at it from a million different directions, give you a deep cut about what this means from a baseball perspective and stuff. I, I can't do what he does. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, at the same time, you know, like the New York Times puts out a newsletter every day where they talk about every topic that matters. I, I can't do that either. <laughs> so I just got to sort of find a little niche of, of people who do that kind of thing. And um, uh, I, yeah, again, it just all comes back to to me being kind of a pain in the butt, want to be independent person. I, I just don't do really well when someone tells me what I should be doing. And uh, when uh, when NBC laid me off, they did their you know cutbacks. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, it was a great gig there because they never told me what to do hardly ever it was just go do what you want and that was the dream job and there was no one else that was going to give me that job so you call it a leap of faith but at the same time I, I viewed it as a nothing to lose situation in that you know I, I start the newsletter write whatever the hell I want uh, if 37 people signed up for it and I didn't make any money off it well fine I'd have to go find a real job <laughs> uh, so I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have lost anything except maybe a little bit of time so uh, but yeah happily it uh, worked out so you're you have to self-edit then while you do your newsletter also, or do you have uh, friends on that side that, that help you out? Uh, no, it's just me. Um, and anyone who reads real closely and sees how many typos and misspellings I put in every day <laughs> will will attest to that. Um, no, I I am self-editing. I'm trying to get better about that. I I never had an editor at NBC either. Um, oh, wow. They just I was very lucky in that I just didn't have. Well, I mean. Sometimes it's great to have an editor, right? Because they can help you not do stupid stuff and they can give you great ideas that you didn't think about. Editors, generally speaking, are really good to have. But I didn't have like a copy editor or someone who would tell me no. Mm-hmm. And the tell me no part was great. Um, the lack of a copy editor often kind of bit me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's become now just like anything else. If it's bad, make it part of your brand and then it's good, right? So part of my brand <laughs> is that I'm going to have really silly typos that make me look dumb. Uh I'm trying to be better about it just because if on NBC, I put up an article at 2 PM and I, you know, for example, my most famous typo ever, which went very viral was uh, instead of calling him Doug Fister, I called him dog Fister in a, uh, in, in a headline that Deadspin grabbed that Buzzfeed grabbed that it was up for like a minute before I realized that I had written dog Fister instead of Doug Fister and it got grabbed. But I was immediately able to go back in, edit it, and fix it, right? Uh, it's still out there, by the way. If you search Dog Fister in my name, you'll you'll see just how much that's, fun everybody else had with it. You can't with be it, the only guy that's done that. You can't I'm be the sure only I'm one. I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> but I'm the only guy who also like tweets stuff out like the second he writes it and doesn't give any <laughs> thought. So um, You're the most so, famous you know, with, one that did it. <laughs> Yeah, so writing on the web is fine because you can go back and like change it immediately and no one knows most of the time. Uh, but with the <laughs> newsletter, I send the thing out in the morning. It's in your inbox. I can't fix it again. It's gone. Right. And you know, I can fix it to where if you go back on the website and look at archive copies, it's fixed. But um, yeah, once it's out, it's out. It's a little scary. So I've tried to take a few minutes in the morning to at least give it a once over. 
<laughs> that's great. That's, that's such an awesome story. I never heard that story. That's oh, it's uh, so bad. I swear <laughs> to God, the thing was up. It was up. It was when Doug Fister like tied the AL record for most consecutive strikeouts. This would have been like mm. 2012, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that headline went out. It was during a day game, and I was watching the game, so I like immediately wrote the story. And I swear it was out a minute, two minutes max. But Deadspin screen capped it, and then it just went everywhere. That's. That I don't. How do we? We should have saved this question for last. That would. How do you follow that up? Do you, how do you follow that up? All right. That's, so, that's being the independent part, right? He's just following the, his own trail. He's like, oh, whatever. I'm saving letters now. It's, I'm not right. using use anymore. This is uh. There, there's no uh. There's no you in dog fister. It's uh, unselfish. Uh, so they uh. Now and uh, yeah, Jim. This will make the next next clip show. Uh, so, so Craig, um, you do write about baseball though. And I do kind of want to talk to you about baseball a little bit. Um, so we're cruising towards 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Without asking you to be a futurist, because I've asked previous guests questions like this. And the first thing they say is, well, I'm not a futurist. You can tell if you're a a working journalist, if they, they make sure to caveat that first. Um, but, um, what do you think when we, in this season, because we, we talked so much nauseam about last season, what do you think we're going to take away from from what from this season? Like the way you see things kind of shaping up, is there one thing that you think you know we're still going to be talking about this for a while? Uh, well, I think there are a couple possibilities. Um, I, I'm it didn't get a huge amount of press a couple of weeks ago, but they they obviously went and tried to deaden the ball, Major League mm-hmm. Baseball, and I think it's Rawlings or whoever it is they own that makes the baseballs. Uh, announced that they, they sort of are changing the composition of the ball a little bit, making little tweaks because of what they, they said were errors in manufacture in the last few years that have led to like a huge amount of home runs. Uh, if you've studied baseball history and changes in the equipment, especially the ball, the littlest things make a huge amount of difference. Like in 1930, the National League went to a different kind of ball and it really just completely caused offense to explode the National League and they didn't even know what they were doing back then. Uh, 1987, 1993, both other times when when the ball was made slightly more lively, uh, probably inadvertently, maybe not inadvertently, but but probably certainly in a way that was undetectable uh, mm-hmm. for most people. Well, they're coming out announcing that they're going to do that this year. There's a decent chance that leads to a huge decline in offense. Uh, maybe maybe not, but I'm really I'm really watching that. So I think we're going to definitely have to pay attention to the context change for this year. It, it, it could happen. And if it doesn't happen, maybe then we have other explanations for the home run happiness in the last few years. So <laughs> it's kind of a geeky thing to look at, but I'm very curious about that. And then from a different uh, side of things, you know, this was a very slow off season as far as free agent signings. Um, I mean, eventually all the big guys signed somewhere, but there were a whole bunch of teams that just didn't make a huge effort to improve themselves. We've seen that a little bit over the last few years. It seemed a little more pronounced this year. Uh, I I think that once we get to October, we're going to see a bunch of teams that have fallen just short that if they had just made a one move here or or another move there would have had a very different season. And I think you're going to have all kinds of buyer's remorse or non-buyer's remorse at the end of the season for teams that could have improved themselves but didn't when you have teams like LA and San Diego that are going to win like 103 games. And right. uh, those, those wins might've been more distributable if uh, you know, there were more teams trying to, trying to work. Right. Jim, you were actually, one of the things we were talking about in the pre-show meeting was, uh, was the ball, right? 
Yeah, the baseball, right? And I, I like how he mentioned like 1930. Um, I mean, that was like, I was just researching through a paper, paper of record, I believe is what I get through Sabre. And uh, you can go back and look at the old sporting news um, and, and see how they were progressing on it. Because, um, yeah, they, 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 it's just amazing. Like the Phillies, they were like not a good team, had the most hits in the league, but they had the worst pitching after that, the ball change and everything else. So equipment changes. Because, um, yeah, from my understanding, like spring training is that Major League Baseball isn't um, – telling the teams which balls they're using is that yeah they're, they're going to be multiple balls that's the thing they still have a huge backlog from the 2020 balls because they obviously only played 60 games instead of 162 and they had a ball order before the season was shut down early um so we're going to have a mixture of balls um but you know you're, you're probably gonna be able to tell because if you remember the 2019 postseason um there was pretty strong evidence that they changed to a different ball for the 2019 postseason and all of these, I, I still remember Ronald Acuna Jr. hit this ball and he just stared at it because for the last two years, that was a 400-foot home run and it fell just short on the track. Um, right. and, and so you're going to see, uh, I think, some of that, you know, we'll be able to tell yeah. <laughs> balls that are struck the way they normally are that, that fall short versus some that continue to just hop out of there. So it's going to be a really weird context. Can you see the the subplots like they're mixing in the baseballs and can you can you just see the team that loses the championship series by like a walk off home run? Well, they deliberately put the put the live ball in there. <laughs> I can't wait for the Houston Astros Yankees LCS and somebody says they put a they put a juiced one in the Astros, you know, Astros pitching or something like that. Oh yeah, You'll, or someone gets a blister. Yeah. Um, you know, that I got the blister because of the low seam ball, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden there was a better ball that was in there when the other guys hit it, and uh, that's that's really dangerous for baseball. Not necessarily because mm -hmm. any one controversy could be bad, but um, you know, when you have sort of a wrestling overlay on any professional sport. Uh, where someone actually might have a case about, well, this was gamed in favor of him or, or, or this was scripted out or something. That's really dangerous for the legitimacy of a professional sport. And the more that they're talking about juice balls versus non-juice balls, um, the, the bigger risk it is for baseball. And uh, that's why I just think it's really dangerous the way things have been going the last several years on that. It's funny. Kind of, it kind of feels like deflate gate. I know this isn't a football podcast, but it feels <laughs> yeah. like that to me, like where you open up the possibility that there's a, a chance that somebody deep down has got favoritism towards somebody that could, that could increase their chances of winning. Right. And yeah. if, that, if that's available out there, even if they're not doing it, the fact that it's possible to do it isn't a good look. Right. So. Yeah. That's the worst case scenario. Like if you found out that like the Yankees got special treatment, I mean, people would just lose it. Mm -hmm. we, we haven't come close to that in baseball yet. Now it's more of a, Oh, the, the hitters have an advantage or the pitchers have an advantage or something. And that's still not great, but it's not team by team, which is how people tend to, to view things. But yeah, if we did have a situation where it was, yeah, I mean, just look how crazy everybody went with the Astros were cheating right now mm -hmm. granted cheating is a little bit different than equipment changes but the idea that one team has an advantage over someone else is the kind of thing that could just stop the sport in its tracks right yeah. and and could not think of worse timing too with everything that's happened so far and then everything that's just immediately on the horizon I, I, I want to talk about like the minor leagues a little bit, right? We've got this restructure that take that's taken place where basically the major league baseball's uh, you know 
kind of running the show now. Uh, we've got less teams in places like where I grew up, Montana, um, that have gone down to independent ball. But I, the biggest concern I have about all in all is is the minor league players in, in general. I didn't see anywhere inside of this um, except for they kept pitching about the health, right? It's going to be a little bit better for the minor league players if they're not having to play rookie ball. Instead, they'd be doing development instead of, like that. But I don't really see anything for minor league players um, protection-wise, right? Is there is there something like a union or what do you feel the, the players at the minor league level uh, need? Do they need MLB to support them in a CBA of some sort that's coming up? Or is there just a union that's missing? What do you feel about that? I mean, a union would be a huge thing for them. Um, it's just, it's it's a it's a long shot that that could ever happen, just given the transitory nature of minor league uh, play. Um, guys come, guys go. Uh, there's a huge uh, fear, I would think, on the part of a lot of minor leaguers that's not unfounded. That you know, to the extent that they tried to agitate for anything, they might be retaliated against by. Major League Baseball, and that's not just a problem in baseball. It's a problem for the entire workforce across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, They have no protections. They have no leverage. Um, Unless you're a a superstar or someone who gets a huge bonus when you're drafted or whatever, you know, then your situation is pretty good. But if you're one of the many hundreds of players who uh, fill out rosters for the purpose of playing games that help those top prospects develop, you kind of got nothing. Um, the, the new system that is set up, uh, I have all kinds of criticisms about it, certainly from a, you know, community perspective, what it's done to places that, like you mentioned, like Montana, I'm from West Virginia and basically that just the Appalachian league was just completely destroyed and chucked out. Um, that's bad. Uh, there will be fewer minor league players because the draft has been cut short. The number of teams have been cut short. There will just be fewer guys coming into the system. So if there was somebody who was maybe marginal as far as being drafted or whatever, they're going to have a much, much harder chance now to make it kind of sucks. Um, the ones who are there, they are getting a little bit better pay uh, starting this year. That's certainly a thing that is happening. Gone from um, dirt to like dirt with some rocks in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not life changing. It's not hugely significant, but there is a bump up in pay for these guys a little bit this year. Um, I was talking with, uh, I was on Kevin Goldstein's podcast the other day, um, and he just until very recently worked for the Houston Astros and mm-hmm. uh, worked in player development. And he was telling me that uh, the situation as far as like food, nutrition, all that kind of stuff, just the day-to-day things that help you be a better athlete, that's definitely improved in major, major ways in the last several years. Teams are way more attentive to feeding guys and making sure they're eating healthy and not just going and getting Baconators all the time. Right. Um but it's still rough. It's still really rough for them. And, uh, you know, it's it's a system where no one really has any, I'm not going to say they don't have an incentive, but they don't have an immediate incentive to help them. I mean, the Major League Baseball Players Association has chosen not to extend membership to the minor leagues. Right. Um, you know, for, for some good reasons that would complicate it because there might be conflicts of interest between major leaguers and minor leaguers, but, but mostly just because it's a huge job and it's kind of thankless. And, uh, you know, that's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think so. Um, unless you're a guy who really has a strong shot of being a big leaguer and you think you can get a bonus when you get drafted and you think you're going to have a, a decent shot at a career, um, whether or not you want to play baseball beyond high school 
or beyond college is is becoming a much harder question. Right. I, I think uh, like with the Fernando Tatis signing, um, we saw that there was a bunch of money that had to go off on the side after that deal was signed because uh, he was part of a, a minor league group of players that got together and said, hey, our successes are our successes. So if one of us makes it, we divvy up a little bit of what that person makes, right? So I think uh, Fernando Tatis's contract, I believe, is worth $30 million to the group of players that signed up in his group. Yeah, that's I, actually, it's, a, it's a company. Yeah. Um, if what the guy who started it is a former he he had a brief period with the Phillies in the majors as a pitcher I'm blanking on his name right now but um it's sort of like a the arbitraging guys major league careers or whatever it's like we'll give you you know a couple hundred thousand dollars when you're a minor leaguer and in exchange once you make the big leagues we get 10 percent of your earnings or something so it's like a it's like a almost like an upscale Busconi yeah, yeah, like, pretty much. Yeah, pretty I mean, much. Uh, it's it, you know, it's Tatis is an interesting case, and he's maybe not the best case to to show this as something right. that's exploitative because, um, you know, his dad was a big leaguer. There's no reason to believe that Tatis was super hard up for money when he was the minor leaguer and he signed right, up for yeah. this deal. He might have had his reasons. Maybe I want you know six figures right now rather than wait five years. Right. Um, but there are guys that are, you know, paying. 10% to this company. There's another one out there that does it too. Uh, but the only reason that business can exist is because minor leaguers are hard up yeah. and uh, you know, that's creating a, a sort of a rent seeking sort of situation for, for companies like that. And if, if you have a player development system that by its very structure is causing guys to have to, you know, basically do the equivalent of taking payday loans. You, you got to look at yourself and ask what you're really creating here. Well, you look at, uh, you know, my, uh, my, my Atlanta Braves and what they did with Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna's contract. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to, if you're Ozzy Albies, you have somebody that represents you. Somebody had to have told him and same with Ronald Acuna. I feel like during that process, you know, you're like worth exponentially more than this. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's it's hard to tell somebody, right? Right. Third in the yeah. hand versus two in the bush. Exactly. And but it puts I agree with you. It, it's sort of the way that the minor leagues and these player development, uh, you know, uh, systems are structured. It's like squeeze the, the, the juice until until there's nothing left. And then they're put in those positions where it's like, like you said, you know, they could just not. I mean, Ozzy Albies has a bad year. Well, you do what you could just get non tendered. He, he wouldn't. But you know what I mean? Like. Well, that's the thing. When you know, when he signed that deal, I think he had had the one really good breakout year. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows if that's a fluke? Who knows if you're not Joe right. Sharpenow or something, and then <laughs> that's never going to happen again. I think maybe a different case with Acuna, who by every account was certainly slated as you know the top young player in the game, and and everybody short of an injury could project him to doing great things. Right. You know, Albie's Albie's sort of came up a little bit more of a surprise to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Tatis is the same way. Right? I mean, Tatis there's every reason the Padres could have had to just offer him something like the Acuna deal or say, we're just going to take you through arbitration and worry about it later. And the right. fact that they didn't is very cool. Um, but you know, the, the way the system and not just the player development system, but the way the CBA is set up, they've got you for six years. Um, and that's not counting your minor league control, but they, they've got you for six years basically until you have full free agency. And given that the importance of younger and younger players uh, where that has has gone, where major league teams are, are relying on younger players now, 
your entire value or a huge part of your value is gone by the time you finally get to that year six. Right. These guys are hitting free agency at 30 sometimes now. And uh, by then, if teams are saying, well, we don't want anybody over 30, you never have really had a chance to get that big payday. So, you know, I sort of understand some of them taking these deals. Yeah. And it's, it's, and, and you know, this, this sort of segues into a, a question that I had where it's, I feel like what it does from us, from a, from a fan perspective, you know, it really does. It takes away the, like I was telling Jim one day, I think it was after the, uh, the bet steal. Like it's going to be like 2027 before we see anything resembling like a, like a really cool, like intriguing free agent class in a lot of ways. Right. And because they're locking them up on these long-term deals and I want, it makes me think, okay, the game, it seems like we're heading in a way and maybe I'm being over dramatic. Like we're almost heading towards a series of like breaking points here. Like the player, you talk about the players and how they're being treated on the pay scale. And that's not to boohoo over, over millionaires necessarily, but you know, it's um, the whole nineties thing of millionaires versus billionaires to me just doesn't fit anymore. Um, so I feel like we're heading towards a lot of breaking points. Do you feel like the, the players and we'll get to the other ones later, but do you feel like we're kind of heading towards that with this CBA that we could be heading towards a real breaking point with the way that this is set up? Well, I think, yeah, actually I do. I, and I guess it depends on how you describe breaking point, but I think that the central problem of the last few CBAs um, has been that from the player's perspective, they've just kind of rolled over what they've had for a long time. And what they had for a long time was a very good deal. I mean, they got free agency in the seventies through the eighties and nineties and into the two thousands salaries were going up. A lot of big free agent deals were signed. Mm -hmm. Major league baseball teams began to change their approach, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, as far as gearing now towards younger players and trying to get the most value out of players when they are the least compensated. The union I think was slow at, appreciating what that meant uh and this last cba that happened in 2016 or whenever it was uh that was a huge miscalculation on their part because what it is now is the system is still geared towards the biggest money going to the guys who you know have hit free agency or late arbitration and there's nothing that they can do to make teams focus on older guys you can't you can't do something in the cba well you can't do something just as a matter of shaming or public uh, anything to say, oh, you should be signing 30-year-old free agents. They don't have to. There's right. nothing that makes them do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, In order to lift all the boats, the, the Players Association has to figure out a way to make the younger players more valuable, which partially will mean they'll be compensated better, but also means that teams might make you know, a decision I'd rather go with the, with the eight year veteran than the young guy, because the, the opportunity cost is not as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to have to change fundamentally the, the structure of player control and player compensation. That's a huge ask in a collective bargaining context. I mean, I mean, raising minimum salaries and pre-arbitration salaries, shortening the period through arbitration, shortening the period to free agency. Those are the things that are going to change things in favor of the players uh, in, a, in an appreciable way. That's It took 30 years to to get those conditions set the way they are. Expecting them to be changed in one collective bargaining agreement round is is a tall, tall order. And trying to begin the process of changing that 
against an ownership class that is way smarter than the ones from 30, 40 years ago is going to lead to a lot of conflict this year. I, I don't, I don't see how we get the 2022 season started on time. I, I really don't see how that could happen. I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a lockout um, in January of 2022, and it's going to impact the 2022 season. What a bummer. Yeah. I mean, because what's going to happen <laughs> is the union is going to say, we want this, this, and this, and they're going to be pretty bold asks because they have to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe they'll view that as an invitation to begin to bargain, but if you're the owners, maybe you don't have to. And, and if it looks like they're going to get, you know, close to the beginning of spring training started and they don't have a, uh, they don't have a framework for an agreement. If you're the owners, you just lock them out because that's the, that that's the least amount of leverage that the players have. The players have huge leverage if it gets to opening day 2022 and then they go on strike. But if you lock them out before then they have way less. Mm-hmm. Dang, that's sad. <laughs> now, I was supposed to have a good weekend. This weekend. <laughs> well, we got a good season coming up ahead. This yep. season will definitely happen. Right. Yeah. See, there you go. Um, it, you know, it, it does, it does beg a lot of questions. Like, you know, we're, we're, this season feels, uh, like it's, I'm so grateful that it's happening. It does feel like, uh, it, there, cause there's a lot of transformation on the, on the horizon. Cause you talk about the CBA. I'm also thinking like, man, the, like the product in the owner's box and the product on the field too, because you know, the own ownership to me, it's almost like, uh, you, you look at a lot of the things that they, it's like they're acting with impunity in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? And simply because they know the fans, AKA the customers, cause they're running a business, a not profitable one, depending on who you ask. Um, will always be there. Yeah. Do do you do you see? And I've I've been like sort of mulling this around in my head, and I've asked a couple of friends, like, what what in in what universe, like, what would it take for fans with the? I mean, even just simple stuff like uh, ticket prices, like MLB TV blackouts, like lockouts, CBAs, like you know, billionaires crying poor, just tearing their teams apart. Um, what do you, what would it take? It's nothing. It's just not right. going to happen. <laughs> I, it's, and it's funny. I, I don't mean to sound like real dour about that because it's never been the case. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a um, dour, it's a dour subject. It's okay, Craig. You're, well, you're, you're <laughs> safe. You're safe here. <laughs> I mean, if you go back to, you know, the 1880s, there were, you know, people in newspapers talking about greedy players who wanted too much money to play a kid's game. That That's not a new thing that, that right. started, you know, as, the minute baseball started, people were complaining that players were greedy and made too much money and they were identifying with the clubs, not the players. Um, you know, we talk about rooting for laundry. There's a very, very real thing in that. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you're a fan of, let's just say you're the fan of the New York Mets, you've been a fan of the New York Mets for 30 years. You're kind of just rooting for the organization that is the Mets. That's not the players that come through. I mean, nobody's rooting for Benny Agbayani right now. You know, he's gone. Um, they're Says you. The ones. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe some <laughs> are. Um, but the closest thing you can identify to is the institution, which is the team and the owners and Major League Baseball are very, very good at claiming that they are the real part of baseball. Players are transitory. We are the teams. We are we are the, the league and the institution. And fans generally, most of them don't, care about this stuff on the same level that like we might i mean and i'm not saying that as a knock i'm just saying that's 
just how life is. Baseball is a true, entertainment yeah. for people. And uh, for the most part, they're just not keying in. You're never going to get most casual fans to care about, uh, you know, service time manipulation or super two eligibility <laughs> or, or, you know, what's going in the pension fund or what that's just not anything that a average person who has their whole life to deal with otherwise is going right. to really care about. So, you know, the, I, and this is, this comes up when people ask me, cause I, I, I write a lot of stuff about the union and internal union stuff. And I have some sources with the union and um, generally have a pro union kind of take on things. And people will ask me, well, why doesn't the MLBPA do better PR or why don't they, you know, try better to talk to fans and, and get them on their side? They, they have tried that in the past and they certainly considered it, but they also know, and, and I think they're right, that nothing they do is really going to change anything. Mm -hmm. This is not a matter of public opinion. Um, they, they, there was so much righteous you know, righteousness on the side of the players in the 1981 strike in uh, labor dustups in the mid eighties, in the collusion stuff in the late eighties, the 94, 95 strike. I mean, if you looked at it for five seconds, it was so obvious that the owners were being unreasonable and the players were right that, you know, if there was ever a time when public opinion was going to be on the side of the players, it would have been then, but it never, never happened. It just never did. And now it's probably a lot more complex to even tell that story because there are pros and cons for both sides and everything. And the owners are way better about not being twirling mustache villains in the press. <laughs> um, there's just no percentage in trying to give a uh, get the fans on your side, as it were. The players know one thing, and they forgot it for a little while, I think, for a few years, but they, they've kind of remembered it again. And we saw a little bit this last year. Um, when they were trying to talk about the circumstances of the restarted season. The only thing that gets the owners to move is the reasonable fear of a strike or at least of, uh, you know, players that have solidarity and are standing together against the owners. The owners know that if baseball doesn't happen, they are screwed. And we, we saw this this last year. I mean, even though it wasn't a strike or anything, we had a cut short season and owners lost a ton of money and they freaked out. If that were to happen because of a work stoppage, whether it's a strike or a lockout, that would be huge for them too. They don't want that. That's the only thing that the players can hit the owners over the head with is the threat of or an actual work stoppage. That's the only place where change comes. And so what that means is when you go into the collective bargaining uh, talks this fall, if the players are together and if they have a message of solidarity and they are asking for very clear things from the owners and making it clear to the owners that do they, if they don't get what they want or at least a lot of what they want, baseball isn't going to happen. That's how things will change. And that's the only way things will change. Right. It's just, and it's hard to have that leadership at the players from the players when the players are disappearing, right? That we're going to a younger game. Um, like the minor leagues now are, are a development system. There's like if Brett Gardner doesn't sign, does he go play AAA ball? Nobody wants him in AAA. That's a development league now, right? So right. now you don't have the players, you know, if we look five, 10 years into the future, are we really going to see any more Clayton Kershaw's? I mean, are we going to see people with contracts at 32, 33 years old? I mean, how, how's it really going to, how are we going to really maintain the the voices that are needed to even try to make that stand? And it just doesn't seem like, yeah, it's I hard. I mean, like right right now, the two most vocal players as far as union stuff goes are Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole. 
uh, they are viewed as the very strongest voices in the union as far as membership goes. Um, they are player reps. They're on the executive committee for the for the union. Um, it takes guys like that, though. I mean, Scherzer's been around a long time. Cole, not so long, but they both have status in this game. They both have a lot of job security in the game. And they've been around long enough to where they have, you know, certainly instilled loyalty in their teammates and respect among other players in the league. There will always be someone like that. Uh, uh, for several years, we had a, a, an absence of that, to be honest. Um, in the in the 90s, when they had the strike, uh, Tom Glavin was the sort of the poster boy for the union. He was like the guy who went to all the meetings. He was considered the player's lead. He was put out in front of the cameras whenever they were negotiating sessions and stuff. And... Uh, uh, he got all kinds of crap for that. He got, you know, some yes, fans he got did. His... Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of thankless. And he gave interviews later in his in his life and since then that, uh, you know, it was it was a very miserable time. It was very thankless. And so because of what happened with Glavin and some of the other union reps back at that time, we went several years from you know late '90s into the 2000s where guys just really weren't into it. And now we've seen a change in that again with guys like Scherzer, guys like Cole. Um, you know, baseball players, there, there is always a, a, a slice of them that are some really smart dudes and they, they doesn't take a lot to look around to see that there's some injustice going on, relatively speaking. I don't mean in an absolute sense, but yeah, you yeah. Know, in the, in the labor sense in baseball. And, uh, so yeah, they're a little more motivated now. I want, and you know, that, that translates to the product on the field. And I, and I wonder too, cause we're talking a lot about, the narrowing of the competitive gap in, in some ways, you know what I mean? Like in, in this t all ties together, I think with ownership, you know, bringing in the, the front offices and, and you, I, you are obviously like, uh, we'll say insanely exponentially more connected than, than either of us. But from <laughs> what I hear is, is from some people is just like, you know, the competitive advantage that people used to have has just narrowed to a pinpoint. And so, I wonder like what, what's next? Like we, I hear people talk about, Oh, they'll move the mound. They'll deaden the ball. Like what are, what are some of the, other, some of the on field things that, you know, could come out of this CBA or could just going forward, like create basically uh, at some point, the game's just a zero sum, right? Yeah, it is. And it's little things. It's like what we talked about with the ball. Um, I mean, I think personally, the the biggest thing that could be done or the most significant thing that could be done to sort of change the context problems we have right now and to the extent we have problems, people have identified them as too many strikeouts, too many walks, too many home runs, not enough balls in play. Mm -hmm. um, those are the, the big issues. And, you know, the thing is, it's weird. It's not like, oh, it's a hitter's game. It's a pitcher's game. It's kind of both in that pitchers are throwing harder and are striking out more dudes than ever, but hitters are hitting home runs. It's not like the 90s when pitchers were just completely screwed right. or the 60s when the hitters had no chance. We have the worst of both worlds kind of in that dominance on, on the, the non-action end of things are, are the most extreme. Uh, you know, deading the ball might help. Uh, I think the biggest thing that would help would be uh, changing the strike zone. Mm -hmm. We had a, uh, you know, again, as a Braves fan, uh, you, you would know uh, back in the days when Glavin and Maddox and everybody used to work the sides, right? You work outside, you work outside, you work a little farther outside, you get that outside corner, and it's a very hard pitch for, for hitters to do anything with. Especially so, if you're Eric Gregg. Well, the yeah, there's that. I mean, look, I'm a Braves fan and, and have been <laughs> since the mid-'80s, so uh, I, I can't complain about who got the benefit of the strike zone the most 
you know, that 97, yeah. uh, that 97 series with Eric Gregg was uh, sort of like, okay, okay. I know this sucks, but we've been getting those pitches for years. Yeah, that was, I, that, that was, that was some, more egregious. That, that was a, that was a tough uh, comeuppance to suffer through. <laughs> it, it was hard, but, but the point of that is um, the, the strike zone used to be a little wider uh, laterally and not as tall or short, you know, going up high, going down low. And the reason it got shrunk to you know narrow but high and low was because of uh, it was quest tech and now whatever they're calling the pitch tracking systems that are judging umpires uh you know we it, it's led to a situation where you get these low strikes that hitters can't do anything with you get high strikes sometimes and you don't get anything on the edges um i think mm-hmm. that's bad because mm-hmm. If you're getting these low strikes, hitters can't do anything with. You're getting a lot of strikeouts. You're encouraging power pitching to get guys to go up high because you have to be pumping the high 90s heat to get away with that. And you're not getting anyone who can nibble on the corners or or paint. And the guys who nibble on the corners and paint are the ones that are most likely to be hittable in terms of a balls and play situation. Right. So we're selecting for for non action right now. We're selecting for walks, strikeouts, and home runs. And I think the strike zone is the biggest culprit, but it gets talked about the least. Do you think that, uh, you know, uh, again, bouncing back and forth between this, like, do you, do you think that the, what I worry about is that we get away and this is like, you made a good point. Like we're a very insular group, us baseball nerds. You know, we, we think that anything that changing the ball is like life changing. But then like my wife is like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Um, But like, I wonder, you know, are we drifting away a little bit from the idea that baseball is entertainment? Are we are we sort of losing that core that core tenant just a little bit when it comes to this sort when it comes to the way the game is structured right now and how it's played? I, you know, I think I I I, I like that question because I I've been trying to talk about that a lot more in the last year or two of baseball as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, that's what it is. And if anything, where we've gotten away from that is sort of how, how front offices work and then how a lot of baseball fans and, and I mean, people like us obsessives, there's a sense of, uh, identifying with the front office, certainly with people who are sabermetrically oriented, uh, for years, you know, analysts and people have thought about baseball in terms of the way the front office thinks about it, about that's an overpay for that player. Efficiency is most important, trying to get, you know, squeeze the most wins per dollar and everything. That's not just a thing that some, you know, heartless hedge fund, you know, trained front office guy came up with. I mean, that's something that's been a main a main thread of baseball fandom for, you know, 20, 25 years now. And I'm guilty of it. A lot of people who came up in the sabermetric world in the late nineties and the two thousands are guilty of it. Thinking of it in terms of problems to be solved, efficiencies to be gained and, and sort of not thinking in terms of, but is it fun or is it entertaining? Um, When you try to build uh, a team with the best guys with the highest on-base percentages and uh, the greatest defensive efficiency, but they're all anonymous. uh, You might've built a great team, but. Or the Rays. Yeah, right. The (laughs) the Rays are a great example. I mean, the Rays are like run so well from the perspective of what I would have said is the way to run a team in 2007. And they're not very fun. 
I mean, they, they play well in, in an individual game. It's interesting to see some very good baseball players do what they do. I don't mean to slag on them, but at the same time, you know, guys are fungible there. Uh, they, they, they just went to game six of the world series and got rid of, you know, their two best pitchers. Uh, and that happens all the time with them and you're rotating dudes out and you're working on efficiency and stuff. That's not really entertaining. Um, and there's a balance though, because you can get a bunch of well-known players who are fan favorites who suck now. <laughs> you don't <laughs> want to do that either. Um, so, I you know, well, I guess one thing I look at is like the Kansas City Royals right now. They're not going to be a good team. They're they're rebuilding. Um, they've got a pretty decent system, from what I understand. Uh, but they've decided, and I, it has to have been a conscious decision. They've brought back some well-loved players from a few years ago that were part of those you know pennant-winning teams. Uh, they've signed some uh, name players who might be past their prime or might be dealing with injury stuff. They extended uh, Hunter Dozier, uh, who, you know, he's like 30 or 31 or something. It's not like he's somebody, he could have easily been a non-tender dude a year from now if, if his uh, 2019 breakout turns out to be a fluke. Um, but they're they're bringing in players that fans want to see. They're they're keeping an entertaining roster, in my view, anyway. I think they're going to be a fun team to watch, um, even though they're probably not going to win a ton of games this year. And I think that's a great balance, but we haven't seen a lot of it. We've seen this either build a super team or completely bulldoze the roster and rebuild with a bunch of anonymous players that no one gives a crap about. And I, I think that gearing it towards both winning and entertainment is something that has to be done and is not done very well. I, I still miss that 2015 Royals team. That was, that was the most with, with Kane and Dyson and uh, Gordon and uh, you know, uh, well, Escobar Mustakis. Mustakis. I mean that, I mean, they were running all over the place. They were that bullpen was amazing. Everything like, yeah, it was like Herrera and, uh, and Holland and, um, and Wade Davis. I mean, they were putting the ball in play constantly. They were running all over the place. Like, I, I, I miss that. I miss that. It was that a really intensely. fun team. And it, it's funny. Cause that, that was what at the time was the narrative there it was like, wow, this is a very different kind of team. The, you know, the Yoast the ball, they called it Yoast ball. Yeah. And they, the word that kept being used is relentless. They, mm-hmm. they I was like almost trademarked that year. The Royals <laughs> are relentless because they put pressure on you on the base paths and they put the ball in play a lot and stuff like that. And that was some pretty entertaining. It reminded me of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an old dude, so I remember early eighties baseball a lot, but mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot of early eighties baseball the way, especially in the national league with so many turf uh, fields and so much running and everything like that. It was a, it was a fun team to watch. It's I, I think for entertainment, I think, describing what entertainment is it's an issue in baseball today right what people are looking for you can start a runner on second extra innings and you can talk to a group of people and the group's divided every time on what what that brings to the table right um yeah some people love uh, the hot stove season right for me i i hate winter right i'd, I'd rather <laughs> see the games played i'd rather see extra innings that never end personally <laughs> but then there's other people that are exactly opposite are looking for the same entertainment out of baseball but are going down a different road than I am completely. Right. And I think, I think that's something I feel that's seen, really not Jim. recognized. What's I f- that? I feel seen right now. I feel, I feel- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. some, some people think, you know, tons of home runs are great and mm-hmm. there's evidence for that. Hey, the nineties man, chicks mm-hmm. did the long ball era was really good for baseball fandom and, and attendance and revenue and everything else. Um, you know, so whether you know, a, a pitching and defense heavy team uh, I think is, 
awesome. I love watching that, but not everybody likes that. So yeah, it's super subjective. That's the one thing about baseball. We, that's why there there'll never be a shortage of arguments about baseball and, and quote unquote problems with baseball, because there's always a problem. It just depends who you're talking to of what the problem is. And, and what some of us consider to be a problem, many people don't consider to be a problem. So it's, you know, evergreen for people like us who chatter about these things. It will continue to fuel these janky, no money podcasts that, that continue <laughs> to prop crop up all over the world with yahoos like myself. <laughs> we just, one thing though, that is for sure is that once they go to robot umps, everything else goes robotic afterwards. And so then this, janky podcast is a couple robots <laughs> we're gonna yeah, be we ro- we're, we're gonna be deep fakes we're gonna be deep fakes jim so so you, all you we gotta probably do, do a bot <laughs> at this point. I, guess I, guess. I would i i you know robot umps i still want angel hernandez to stand behind the plate and see see what he's done <laughs> um craig where, where can people where can people find you man what's uh what's what's uh besides cup of coffee anything that we should keep our eye out for uh, let's see. Um, no, not unless you care about local politics in Columbus, Ohio. I oh, well, a, I uh, mean, you read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I write a, I write a, uh, biweekly, uh, political column for, uh, the Columbus Alive newspaper. Um, but that's not that important. I just find things to, to complain about because it's fun. Um, I'm writing a book right now. It's probably not going to see the light of day until either late this year or the beginning of next year, but it's about baseball fandom and the, uh, the nature of baseball fandom. And, how we relate to the game and how the game relates to us as fans and how that maybe could be viewed differently uh, if we wanted to. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll talk about that more when that happens. Uh, otherwise, I'm just on Twitter all day being uh, being terrible at Craig Calcaterra. And uh, my newsletter is uh, a cup of coffee at substack.com. That's fantastic. Well, and I don't right, think and, and right now I believe it's 20% off through spring training. And as Craig says, it's like 22 cents a day. And basically I'm paying you to read it. <laughs> it pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, you know, we, I don't think you're terrible, Craig. I mean, you, you got, good. you got one believer here, man. You got, you got I one. Appreciate believer. That. <laughs> I, I got you. I got my mom. Most of the time I got my wife and kids, but yeah. that's all you need. That's all you need. Well, uh, yeah. And that's about the craziest part. I think that isn't uh, your daughter, the most famous in the group now. Oh yeah, absolutely. She's, she's got viral fame because people only see her good side. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't wait till my daughter's that age. It'll be fun. Uh, I, I don't wish a 17 year old daughter. on anybody, <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us, Craig. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. Thanks Craig. Appreciate it.